0: eavesdrop on experts stories of inspiration and insights it's where expert types obsess confess and profess i'm chris Hatzis. let's eavesdrop on experts changing the world one lecture one experiment one interview at a time
1: i'm dr bianca Philiborn. i'm a senior lecturer in criminology in the school of social and political sciences here at the university of melbourne
0: Dr. Philiborn is also an Australian Research Council Discovery Early Career Researcher Award Fellow and her project examines victim-centred justice responses to street harassment in Australia. She's involved in collaborative projects examining sexual violence at Australian music festivals and young LGBTIQ plus people's involvement in family violence. Bianca is the author of Reclaiming the Nighttime Economy, Unwanted Sexual Attention in Pubs and Clubs, and co-editor of Me Too and the Politics of Social Change. Dr. Bianca Philiborn sat down for a Zoom chat with Dr. Andy Horvath.
2: Bianca, what exactly is your area or field of research? So my research is broadly
1: in the field of, of sexual violence, and most of my research is concerned with looking at how a range of different factors will shape what people understand sexual violence to be and and people's experiences and the impacts of sexual violence. So I'm particularly interested in looking at how things like um, someone's identity, so particularly around um, diverse gender and sexual orientation and age, Um, And also social and cultural locations and physical environments all come together to shape um, how sexual violence occurs. So in some of my current um, and recent projects, for example, that's included looking at street-based harassment, so sexual and other forms of harassment in public and semi-public spaces. I've also done some work recently looking at sexual violence in um, music festival spaces in Australia and sexual violence in, in licensed venues. So a big part of my research is really asking, like, what is it about these different spaces that might be facilitating um, sexual violence in particular ways.
2: Wow, there's a lot to unpack there. Who does this actually happen to?
1: That's a really good question. So I think women, predominantly the victim survivors of sexual violence, but it's really also important to note that uh, members of LGBT communities also face disproportionate levels of sexual violence. But yeah, certainly we know that cisgender, heterosexual women, probably the vast majority of victim survivors in the country, research from the Personal Safety Survey that the Australian Bureau of Statistics runs um, every four years or so, suggests that around one in five Australian women have experienced some form of sexual violence. But it also depends how we define sexual violence, right? So once we start looking at things like sexual harassment and harassment in public spaces. Some of the estimates are closer to uh, 90% of women have been having experienced those behaviours at some point in their lifetime. For trans and gender diverse people, um, we know that they also really disproportionately experience sexual violence. So there was some research that came out uh, about two years ago now that was done by a team at at UNSW. Um, I wasn't involved in this project, unfortunately, but they found that over 50% of of trans and gender diverse people had experienced some form of, of sexual violence in their lifetime, and we see, you know, similar kinds of rates for um, LGBT populations. Um, particularly bisexual women encounter particularly high rates of sexual violence and harassment. And I guess the other really key factor is age. So although sexual violence can happen across the life course, research would suggest that it's younger people who um, face the highest risk of experiencing sexual violence.
2: Without triggering any of our listenership, what exactly is involved? Is it also verbal? Is that what you mean by harassment and violence is physical?
1: I think of of sexual violence as occurring along a continuum of behaviours. So the continuum of sexual violence was a model that was developed by a UK-based scholar called um, Professor Liz Kelly. And this model essentially suggests that sexual violence really ranges from You know, those things that we might dismiss as being very kind of mundane or trivial. So, things like verbal comments or, you know, someone um, staring and leering at you, all the way through to, you know, those physical forms of um, like sexual assault and rape. So, the idea of understanding sexual violence along a continuum is based on the fact that all of these behaviours are underpinned by the same power structures and and attitudes and that they all function to remove the victim-survivors' sexual autonomy and control over their bodies. So even though these are you know vastly different behaviors and it's you know not suggesting that a verbal comment is the same or equivalent to someone um you know sexually assaulting or, or raping you, it is helpful to understand how all of these behaviors and experiences are underpinned by the same structures and and systems of of power. The continuum model, it does also resist hierarchical understandings of harm. So, um, again, although I wouldn't say that a verbal comment is the same as being sexually assaulted, it does say that, you know, we can't make simplistic assumptions about which experiences are more or less harmful than others. And it also recognises that for many, uh, particularly for women and gender diverse people, that they'll often have multiple experiences of sexual violence across their lifetime, uh, and that those different encounters or experiences inform uh, one another and are lived alongside one another. And that's also going to shape the harm that's associated um, with a particular incident.
2: You mentioned power, and I'm keen to know more about why it happens, drilling into the, the why What does the perpetrator seek to achieve?
1: Yeah, so I mean, on an individual level, um, the perpetrator's motivations can really vary. You know, I think in some cases, sexual violence probably is an outcome of some fairly, you know, misguided understandings about um, sex, particularly in heterosexual or heteronormative contexts. You know, I think we do have a lot of norms or scripts around how we negotiate our sexual encounters that uh, tend to promote, I guess, the use of coercion and pressure. So, you know, the idea that women will say no or kind of offer token resistance and you kind of just have to keep pushing them until they say yes. Um, So those kind of dominant ideas are basically normalising sexual violence. Um, And I think, you know, some predominantly men who are perpetrating this behaviour. So, you know, some men have probably internalised some of those norms. In some cases, it's a sense of entitlement towards uh, women and and women's bodies, and it can also be a way of of dominating and expressing power and control over somebody else. Um, So I think on an individual level, any one of those factors could come into play. In a lot of cases, it's probably a, a complex interplay of those different factors if we kind of zoom out and ask that question on a you know a kind of society-wide level of what's causing sexual violence um, the answer really comes back to power inequality or power differentials so we know that gender inequality is a a driving factor in sexual violence occurring I think it's also important to recognize other power structures that come into play so heteronormativity um, which is you know the idea that heterosexual relationships um, are kind of normal and should be privileged in in society and that's accompanied by you know homophobia transphobia and and queerphobia Uh, we know that racism and ableism also come into play so those power differentials are all really key um and we see that manifest in a in a wide range of ways so if we think about gender inequality you know that can manifest in the dismissal or the lack of regard that um, we give to women you know we dismiss things as being women's work or as having less value than the things that that men tend to do um, we see it manifest in the lack of women in uh, leadership positions you know things like the gender pay gap those are all examples of of gendered inequality. And we know that there are higher rates of sexual violence in societies where there are higher levels of gender inequality. The other really key factor is Gender norms and our understanding of what it means to be a man or a woman. So, um, people who adhere to really rigid or narrow gender norms, so who have very kind of strict ideas around what men and women are and what they should do, that those people are more likely to hold violence-supportive attitudes. So they're more likely to, for example, believe in rape myths and misconceptions, and they're more likely to hold attitudes that will minimize. And excuse um, perpetrators' behaviour. There's also some evidence that those individuals are more likely to perpetrate um, different forms of gender based violence, and particularly men who adhere to um, what we call hostile masculinity. So you know, this is, I guess, a, a version of masculinity that you know sees um, men and women as being uh, firstly quite you know opposite to one another. You know that men are there to kind of be these you know strong protectors, and that women are kind of um, passive and weak. And they you know, tend to view sex as being a, a competition or something that you get from women rather than a, a mutual, you know, pleasurable, wanted um, exchange between two people. So, yeah, those um, gendered norms can can really come into play in both facilitating sexual violence, but also creating a broader culture that is supportive of uh, sexual violence occurring.
2: What are some of the misconceptions that you often encounter about this area of research?
1: There's so many. Um, Unfortunately, uh, we know that quite a large minority and and in some cases a majority of the community holds some really inaccurate beliefs about sexual violence and gender-based violence in general. Um, And unfortunately, we've seen some of those playing out in in the media over the last uh, couple of months. Um, So certainly, you know, the idea that victim survivors and women in particular lie um, about sexual violence or that they make accusations, um, you know, to get revenge on someone is a really common misperception that comes up a lot. In relation to my research more specifically, like one thing that I often hear Particularly around my work looking at street-based harassment and you know some of those forms of sexual violence that are perhaps perceived as being more trivial. I'll often have people say that, you know, that's not real sexual violence or that you know this type of work is harmful or offensive to people who have experienced more severe um, or stereotypically serious forms of sexual violence. And again, I think that comes back to a, a lack of understanding about the full continuum of, of sexual violence and that need to understand how um, these seemingly quite disparate behaviors are actually um, interconnected i think another you know myth that comes up in doing research on sexual violence is the idea that it's you know somehow inherently harmful or re-traumatizing for survivors to talk about their experiences And certainly, you know, it can obviously be um, upsetting or distressing to to relive um, past experiences. But actually, in my own experience in doing this research, uh, and also based on, you know, some of the literature that's out there, actually, for a lot of survivors, taking part in research and having the opportunity to, you know, share their experience in a way that's meaningful, and they feel like, their experience is being heard and they're potentially able to make a difference in, you know, preventing sexual violence or in driving policy and practice changes, um, that can actually be incredibly uh, beneficial uh, and a really um, rewarding experience for survivors. So, you know, of course, it's an incredibly sensitive area to be doing research in, but I think we also need to take care to not um, not take a really paternalistic attitude or just automatically assume that survivors are going to be, you know, inherently um, damaged by speaking to researchers.
2: I'm keen to hear your reflections on hashtag Me Too and the politics of social change that's starting to move in interesting directions. I think
1: Me Too has been a really interesting movement and, you know, quite a a complex and a contradictory movement in a lot of ways. So, you know, on the one hand, I think it's been a phenomenally important moment in sexual violence activism. We've seen this sustained conversation on sexual violence certainly in Australia, and I would say um, also on a a global level to some extent, you know, we've seen a really sustained conversation for, you know, almost three and a half years now. Um, I think that's an incredible impact. You know, it's really difficult to think of another movement that led to such a a sustained um, conversation. You know, I think for a lot of survivors, the Me Too movement really created an opportunity Um, to share their experiences, you know, sometimes for the the first time in a context where they were perhaps more likely to be believed and supported than they previously might have been. On the other hand, um, I think there are a a lot of limitations to the Me Too movement. You know, we know that the Me Too movement was sparked by the actress Alyssa Milano tweeting, you know, if you've experienced um, sexual harassment, or assault, you know, tweet, say, me too. Um, However, the phrase me too um, was coined by African-American activist Tarana Burke over a decade earlier. uh, And of course, you know, that did not receive the same level of of recognition as having a a wealthy white woman uh, with a large platform saying me too. So there were certainly concerns around whose voices are being heard and privileged as part of this movement, and arguably it was predominantly white, middle-class Western women. Was there space for people of colour or women of colour, for LGBTQ plus communities, uh, for women from outside the global north? I think that's more questionable. I think the other question that we have to ask is, you know, is survivors speaking out enough to generate the sort of social, cultural and structural change that we need? Because we have had survivors speaking out for decades now. You know, we, we've had the statistics of how pervasive sexual violence is for decades. It's not like we didn't know that this was a problem. So, you know, I think there is a question of, well, why is it taken you know, millions of survivors speaking out to generate attention. Um, but more importantly, what are we going to do about it? And I'm not sure that we've actually seen the implementation of, you know, responses and efforts to start to generate that social and structural change that we need. So whether or not the Me Too movement actually generates that kind of lasting sustained change that we need, I think is is still open to question.
2: I've seen a change in the way we speak about it in the media. It's it's or even how we speak about it socially, like we instead of saying take care going home, we actually say to predominantly young males, be respectful. So the narrative has sort of started to shift a little bit. Is that a good thing?
1: It is, um, and I would agree that it has started to shift in some respects, but at the same time we do still see, you know, those kind of um, victim-blaming attitudes. It was last month we saw the the head of the Australian Defence Force, you know, telling uh, young women to, you know, basically not walk home by themselves if they were attractive or had been consuming alcohol. Um, I think uh, everything that's unfolded in our federal parliament over the last few months um, has also illustrated how um, you know we we often continue to protect men who are in positions of power I think clearly our Prime Minister has been very reticent to actually implement you know, real, real change or to take a, a stand on the issue of, of sexual violence. So yes, I, I do think we have seen some positive shifts. At the same time, we're not seeing the extent of change that we need. And I don't think we're seeing the commitment to generating change from people who are in a position of power.
2: What would it take for major law reform? Is the solution law reform? So I'm quite sceptical
1: at this point about the potential for law reform. So we actually have had, particularly in Victoria, some quite progressive and and several rounds of very major law reform. Uh, We're actually undergoing uh, an inquiry right now in Victoria, so the Victorian Law Reform Commission is uh, currently doing a review of sexual offences and basically how they're dealt with across all aspects of the criminal justice system. Unfortunately, from the decades of reform that we've seen, it hasn't made a difference to um, whether survivors report. So, you know, it's still 90% of survivors who are not reporting to the police. We haven't seen any change in terms of how cases that are reported progress through the system. The vast majority of cases that are reported are, are dropped out of the system along the way. Uh, and the vast majority do not result in a successful conviction in court. We also see survivors continuing to say that the trial process is incredibly re-traumatising. So I'm honestly at, at For me, I'm at the point where I'm not sure how much more we could do. You know, I think there are, uh, sure, like there's still some small things that could be tweaked, like we've seen discussions around the need for jury education or, you know, whether judges could be more interventionist, but if the reforms aren't, implemented in the spirit that they're intended to, Um, if we continue to see a criminal justice system that operates uh, in a way that's informed by, you know, rape myths and misconceptions, um, if we continue to see defence counsel who are willing to, you know, imply that a survivor is lying or that they were promiscuous or, you know, drawing on rape myths and stereotypes, as a defence. You know, I just don't have a lot of faith that that's the, the path that we should continue going down. I often ask, you know, why do we keep going back to a system that has fundamentally failed victim survivors repeatedly and expecting a different outcome? So I think rather than law reform, I'm much more interested in Firstly, what can we do around preventing sexual violence and in changing those norms, attitudes and structural factors that drive sexual violence uh, in the first place? And secondly, how might we develop alternative avenues for achieving a sense of justice? Uh, because it's pretty clear that the mainstream justice system just isn't up to task um, in, in achieving a sense of justice for survivors or the overwhelming majority of survivors who've experienced sexual violence.
2: So what would be a plausible future um, that you'd like to see?
1: Firstly, I'd like to see um, a range of different justice responses implemented. So we know from research Uh, with victim survivors, that they actually have quite diverse justice needs. So justice needs basically refers to what do survivors need to happen to feel like justice has been achieved. And for some people, absolutely going to court, you know, seeing a perpetrator convicted can be really important, but actually for a lot of survivors, they value things like being able to give voice to their experience in a way that's meaningful and where they feel like they've been heard um you know having a sense of control over the process once they've reported having an offender acknowledge what they've they've done and you know issue a, an apology like a sincere apology for their behavior um having their perpetrator held to account can be really important but that's not the same thing necessarily as seeing the perpetrator punished. Um, so I think there are some potential avenues that we could look at. So restorative justice is one option and that really involves um, the victim perpetrator and other um, parties that were you know, involved uh, in a, in an offence or who have some role to play in supporting the victim and the perpetrator coming together to talk about what happened. It's an opportunity for the survivor to, express what happened and how they were impacted in their own words. Uh, It's an opportunity for the perpetrator to acknowledge the harm that they've caused um, and most importantly to um, talk through what the perpetrator will do to make amends for their actions. Another option is a transformative justice approach. So we're seeing this implemented much more in the United States at the moment. Um, So this is a really kind of grassroots community-led approach that operates outside of the formal system. So this essentially involves people in the community working really intensively with perpetrators and with survivors Um, But importantly, it's aimed at actually challenging and undoing those structural factors that underpin sexual violence So, for example, it could involve working with a perpetrator to challenge and and change their understandings of masculinity that led to them perpetrating in the first place. It can also involve supporting perpetrators who might be marginalized in other ways, for example, in relation to mental health or, say, uh, a lack of employment And finally, it's also focused on working with survivors to help them to heal and recover uh, and to ensure that they're safe in the community uh, at all times.
2: Criminology is such a fascinating area. It's a mixture of law, uh, ethics, morals, sociology, psychology. Bianca, what got you into this area? It's a good
1: question. so in terms of why I chose criminology as an undergraduate student. So actually, when I started university, I was going to be a scientist, I did a a science degree and an arts degree, I did majors in you know genetics and biochemistry, and I'd chose criminology because I think at one point I wanted to do law and you know didn't get the marks um, to get into law, but thought, oh, criminology sounds interesting, um it's kind of related to law. So I'll give it a crack and actually really loved it, found it really fascinating. I think I got about halfway through my degree and realised I really did not want to be a scientist um, as much as I loved Learning about science, I hated doing lab work and, you know, couldn't really see um, what area would I research in, for example, if I went down that path. So, yeah, I think I, I realised that I had a, a much stronger interest and more of a calling um, to criminology. So in terms of how I got into my specific area of research, uh, it was actually in large part based on some of my own experiences of, of sexual harassment. So my honours and PhD research looked at unwanted sexual attention and sexual violence in licensed venues. And I was really inspired to do that project uh, basically as a young woman who was you know going out in Melbourne and experiencing some form of, of sexual harassment almost every time I went out. I started speaking to my my friends about their experiences and, you know, realised I didn't know any young women or um, gender and sexuality diverse young people who hadn't had similar experiences. And Around the same time that I was thinking about this uh, was when the lockout laws were introduced in Melbourne. So this was around, I think, 2007. There'd been some really high profile incidents of, you know, young men going out, getting really drunk and, you know, having fights in the street or, you know, king hitting each other. And obviously, that's a concern and an and issue that needs to be addressed. But we saw this huge government response, you know, massive change in policy, um, police operations in the city on the weekend that were all about targeting violence between young men. And I thought, well... No one's actually talking about the thing that's making me feel unsafe when I go out you know, to a bar on on the weekend. So I thought I had an opportunity to, to do something about that and to put the issue on the agenda, so to speak. Um, and yeah, so that's what I did.
2: Bianca, you spoke about spaces and places where this occurs. What insights do we get from knowing where this type of violence occurs?
1: yeah, so one of the really key things that's come up across um, my different projects is that the location that sexual violence is happening in can really shape firstly, how survivors understand um, their experiences, um uh, but also what's able to take place. So, for example, in my my work on sexual violence in licensed venues, One thing I found was that the young people I spoke to often really normalised different forms of sexual harassment and violence occurring in those spaces because you know, people often go out to a nightclub or a bar to hook up or, or to pick up or flirt with someone for the night. Um, you know, perhaps you wanna, you know, wear something that looks a bit sexy, um, as you should be able to, but I think this real perception that because of that, that you somehow just had to be accepting of the fact that you would receive Sexual attention, and that that might include sexual attention that's unwanted, you know, if not quite quite violating. So the environment could really normalize and excuse sexual violence. I think in both you know licensed venue spaces, but also um, music festivals, that like drugs and alcohol played a really huge role as as well. So you know people were often drinking quite heavily in in these spaces and. You know, participants were often really quite uh, I don't want to say w- willing, but they would quite uh, quite readily you know excuse perpetrators' behaviors as like, oh, they were just a bit had a bit too much to drink, you know, they didn't know what they were doing. And on the flip side of that, for survivors who had, ha- you know, perhaps had a lot to drink or, or taken some other substances, um, they were much more likely to be, you know, blamed for their experiences. So we can see how the kind of normative practices of different spaces can work to excuse and and minimise sexual violence. Uh, And then the actual physical environment itself could create different possibilities for sexual violence so I think a really good example of this uh, in our work on music festivals was in the the mosh pit area. So like towards the front of the stage where it's you know really crowded and people are you know dancing around and all kind of squished in together, that really created an opportunity for things like groping and unwanted touching to occur. And it meant that perpetrators could plausibly deny their behaviour and just say, you know, oh, didn't mean that. I, it was just crowded and I got pushed into you. You know, it meant that perpetrators could disappear quite quickly into the crowd so it was difficult to even identify who they were let alone hold them um, to account or you know we spoke to some women who said yeah someone someone grabbed me on the bum and I turned around and there's you know 20 people around me and I have no idea who did it so that kind of environmental and, and spatial context again could really facilitate and and create opportunities for perpetration.
2: Next time we hear something in the news about street harassment or violence, what would you like us to think about?
1: I think in relation to street harassment, I would like people to think about how it impacts on the people who are receiving it and to understand that it's not trivial or minor that, you know, being harassed in public spaces actually has a really profound negative impact on the people who are, you know, on the receiving end of it. So, you know, we know that young women and LGBT people will often significantly limit how they use public spaces. You know, I've spoken to people who've said they don't use public transport anymore because of being harassed. You know, people change how they dress know, when they go out, who they go out with, it really limits um people's freedom and capacity to just exist in, in public space in a way that I think, you know, a lot of particularly cisgender men would just take for granted. So I would really like people to understand how serious that behaviour can be. But I'd also like people to understand that there's nothing There's nothing inevitable about any form of sexual violence. Um, Sexual violence is made possible because of the social, cultural and structural conditions that we live in. And, you know, we do have the power um, and the ability to stop
2: sexual violence from happening. Dr. Bianca Philiborn, thank you. My pleasure. Thanks.
0: Thank you to Dr. Bianca Fillerborn, Senior Lecturer in Criminology at the School of Social and Political Sciences, University of Melbourne. And thanks to Dr. Andy Horvath. Eavesdrop on Experts. Stories of Inspiration and Insights was made possible by the University of Melbourne. This episode was recorded on March 30, 2021. You'll find a full transcript on the Pursuit website. Production, audio engineering, and editing by me, Chris Hatzis. Co production, Sylvie Van Wall and Dr. Andy Horvath. Eavesdrop on Experts is licensed under Creative Commons Copyright 2021, the University of Melbourne. If you enjoyed this episode, review us on Apple Podcasts and check out the rest of the eavesdrop episodes in our archive. I'm Chris Hatsis. Join us again next time for another
2: eavesdrop on experts.